0: I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about family, again, church, and culture. Um, I think it's, it's something that uh, there's a lot of scripture that pertaining to culture that we oftentimes overlook what, uh, how culture affects uh, the church uh, and how the church culture should really affect the world. And it's um, it, it's something I think it's good for all of us. And if you would with me, Genesis 13:10 through 12, then Genesis 19:14 through 17, then John 17:14 through 18. Again, Genesis 13:10 through 12. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. And Abram lived, dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tent towards Sodom. In Genesis nineteen fourteen through 17, And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened, Lot saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth, and set him without the city." And it came to pass when they had brought him forth abroad that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. John seventeen fourteen through 18. And I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Jesus praying a prayer in John 17. And in Romans 12, too, it just says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing. That's making your mind new all over again, of your mind. That you may prove what is that good, acceptable perfect will of god turn shake somebody's hand and then you may be seated did everybody shake somebody's hand don't feel like everybody shook somebody's hand you didn't did you get up and go shake somebody's hand you don't have to. I'll I'll make you shake mine twice, okay? After after service. <laughs> you ever really thought about this? I did a, a little bit of uh, a study on this. It's interesting. When you see the decline in, and it's not just our society; it's a decline, uh, uh, well, in 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 the world. But we're going to focus on North America. Uh, you see the decline of, of, of many aspects of, of culture, and, it, and it can't, you can't help but wonder why the, the great dichotomy between the decline of moral values that we see in our society and an, an interest in the Bible. And, and this, is, this is the thing that really was uh, astounding to me. There was a series on television on the History Channel a miniseries called the Bible, and it was interesting that this was a very, very strong success. According to the uh, to the Varna Group, the Bible series premiered on March third, two thousand thirteen, and had thirteen point one million viewers. It was in two thousand thirteen. The biggest success on television outside of sports, but that's amazing to me. But you see, people that have an interest in the Bible, but they're not interested in living what the Bible tells you to live. They're not interested in the precepts on living the precepts of Scripture. Uh, you know, I'd say they don't follow the exhortations, and they they. I don't know how people regard the Bible. Is it? Is it? Do they look at it as this is a piece of antiquated literature? But we're just interested because this is what great-grandma, they live by this, or something of that nature? I, I'm not sure. I, personally, I, I think that people would like to be more Bible-oriented. When I, When I say that, I'm not talking about just reading it. I'm talking about living it. I think they would like to be, but... Again, our culture is such, uh, so much peer pressure, and people give in to so much peer pressure. Where are the leaders in our society? Where are the leaders in North America? Where, where is it where a person, a young person, an old person can stand up and say, this is right? And whatever you choose to do, you're not going to influence me on what I know is right. Why can't we be the influencers instead of being influenced by a society that's going then a society that's going to hell? Right, right. You know, why can't we do that? Uh, the survey of the Barner Group discovered the following statistics, and and this was nearly nine out of ten, which was eighty eight percent Americans actually own a Bible. Now, despite such a high number, that's declined since ninety three. Uh, Only a slight decline because 92% and 93 own a uh, a Bible. or Americans own a Bible. Now, on an average, an American Bible owners have 3.5 Bibles in their home, and one quarter of Bible owners, 24%, have six or more. What do Americans really think about the Bible? Think about it. To put it succinctly, uh, owning Bibles will not help the individual. to to ward off the effects of a rapidly declining culture, morally, socially, and spiritually. Only living by the precepts will help you. In other words, you know, you can say, hey, Brother Robertson, bring me a Bible. I really feel like I need one. And you can just lay it down and, and treat it like some kind of mystic token. That doesn't work that way. You can't put a Bible under your pillow and expect that Bible to help you overcome your nightmares unless you know what's in that Bible. You understand what I'm saying? We don't use it as something uh, like a piece of witchcraft. And we have to be careful with that. But the Word of God is what will help me. If I can go to bed at night and have that Word in my heart and begin to quote it by my mouth, me doing it, then I can ward off the evil that's around me. But only knowing it will make the difference. And that is the only way. The applicable definition of culture. Let's look at this as we will study Study it today is the total pattern of human behavior and its products embodied in thought, speech, action, and artifacts and dependent upon man's capacity for learning, transmitting knowledge to succeeding generations through the use of tools, language, and systems of abstract thought. B the body uh, excuse me. The body of customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. This was Merriam-Webster's Unabridged Dictionary that said this. Now, as we study the influence of culture on the family, you're going to look at Abraham and Lot, uncle and nephew. They were submitted to, to a real test of character. Lot made a choice to determine his future and the future of generations to come. Lot chose the culture of the world, which influenced both him and his family. Abraham, on the other hand, chose to embrace the culture of righteousness regardless of where he lived. Uh, and that's how we have to see this. It, what kind of person are we going to be? Are we going to be a lot that only uses the eyes to figure out what we want? Whatever looks good to the flesh, whatever our eyes take in, and we, we go that direction. Or are we going to be an Abraham, which does not necessarily see with a natural eye, but he can see with a spiritual eye and a place that may not necessarily be uh, that best looking, if you would. It doesn't look like a. I can feed all my flocks and herds in this rocky Terrain, but there's something else over there that I want. You understand what I'm saying? Something that feeds the inside of me. Uh, Lot was he was content with the well-watered plains of Shinar. He was content by pitching his tents towards Sodom. But it was Abraham that wanted to pitch his tents in Canaan, the rough and the rocky way. If you're going to have any kind of spiritual consistency, any kind of life in the spirit, your spirit you're gonna you're gonna walk over a rocky road. You're gonna walk into rough areas, but that is the areas where God God can deal with you. If all you want is an easy path, if all you want is the way of Sodom Gamara, Gomorrah, then that's the way that leads to destruction. But I and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. I and my family, we're going to go the rough way, and we're not going to be in any way influenced by a society that doesn't care. Now, as we study Elimelech and and, and Boaz, we're going to see the influence of culture on the people of God. They each responded differently to the famine in Bethlehem, Judah. Elimelech left and died. Boaz stayed and was blessed. The two Gentile daughter-in-laws of Naomi each told their mother-in-law goodbye as she left Moab for Bethlehem, Judah. But Ruth decided to go with Naomi, leaving home, and her sister-in-law, Orpah, stayed and wept. But Ruth left, and she rejoiced. Believers are the light and the salt of the world's culture today. And although the culture may not realize it, believers have a positive, a very positive response to righteousness. Is is a preserving force that may even cause God to delay his judgment. Righteousness is the only preserving element to the world. Let me tell you this without any doubt in my mind. The only thing that is stopping the Lord from coming back to receive his church right now is because there are still a righteous group of people that are praying for their family members. There's still a righteous group of people that are praying for backsliders there's still a group of people who are saying yes I want you to come but I don't want to leave behind these people and they're standing firm and they're not falling away if we go by the way of some of the churches right now the Lord would have already come a long time ago but there are a group of people not just UPC people but a group of people that love God that are out there serving him according to the will and the purpose of God and as a result of that the Lord's saying okay I'm going to let you win one more okay I'm going to let you get your family members in I'm going to give you just a little bit more time that is the only thing that is keeping the lord from coming back right now the gospel is the only hope of the lost society does not have the answer for the crime and the severe problems plaguing our world the church has the answer because jesus is the only hope and the cure for the world's ills that is the only hope Why? Why? Let me just ask this question. Why? Why would worldly, carnal, government, uh, society, leaders in the world, why would they want to come against something that's actually keeping darkness from overcoming the world? Unless that group of people was led by that darkness. Think about it. Even if you're not a part of the church, and even if you enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, you have to know that out there somewhere, there's a group of people that's keeping you from being overcome by evil. Why do you think that, and everybody in here can answer. If you've been serving God in length of time, everybody in here will, will answer this with a yay. You've got family members or friends that still call you, even though they'll never darken the door. Please pray for me. I'm in a bad position. I may die. I may, I, you know, my, my family's messed up. I've got all these problems. What do they do? They call the people that are still in the church. I know people. I know people, and so do you, who would be upset if you backslid. Because you were their, 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 their connection. And, and they, would be, they would be devastated if something happened. Because they depend on you. So why wouldn't our society know the same thing? That there are churches out there that keep a connection to righteousness, to a righteous holy God that keeps darkness from overwhelming. I'm going to come back to that thought in a few minutes. But that it keeps righteousness going in the world. It keeps the darkness away or keeps it at bay. Now, we are a product of our culture. Now, a baby that's born to a Rwandan family usually learns to speak Swahili. A baby born into a French family most often learns to speak French. Not only do babies normally grasp the language of their nativity, they also absorb the customs of their respective country for good or for bad. Culture definitely influences the family. Now, if a culture is not evil, it will not harm people endeavoring to please a holy God. But if a culture is basically good but has some bad characteristics, godly individuals can receive the good and ignore the bad. Now, in Noah's day, before the flood, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. The whole antediluvian culture was evil, Therefore, Noah and his family had to resist the culture of their day. Now, here you have a situation where the whole culture was evil. No good in them whatsoever. So, God destroyed the earth as a result of this. Now, when Daniel and the three Hebrew, uh, young three young Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, they were immediately taken from the culture of the Hebrews to the culture of the Babylonians there was an immediate clash of two diverse cultures, which meant that Hebrews had to make some vital decisions. And not only were there major differences in the worship of Babylon, there was also differences in the diet and the daily life. To prepare the Hebrews for their role as a part of the king's attendance, the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them for three years, and at the end thereof they might stand before the king, according to Daniel 1.5. But Daniel 1.8 says this, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drunk. So Daniel made a purpose. I'm not going to throw my culture aside. I have a righteous culture, and I'm not going to defile myself with the king's meat. He took a chance. He had permission from the head of the eunuchs, but still he threw it aside because he had to appear before the king, and he had to have a certain look, a certain demeanor, if you would, or the king would have had him killed. So he, he, he was not going to give up on that. They know, by special permission, they said the prince of the eunuchs, Daniel and other Hebrews were allowed to complete their training a period of three years without having to violate their dietary customs. At the end of the three years, Daniel 1, 19 and 20 says, Among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king and in all manners of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them and he found them 10 times better than all of his magicians and astrologers that were in his realm. So by the fact that they would not give up what they knew a culture of righteousness to be they were in favor with the king more than all the rest that was there. Understand something. Understand this very very well. In order to fit in if you give up a culture of righteousness that is a part of our apostolic heritage, you will be no better than the world. You will be absolutely no better than the world. I uh, I I, I'm, I will say this, and I'm not one. If I see something in the Bible and I see it, and it, uh, you know, I, I study to show myself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing it, I don't take everybody's word. They'll take one scripture, pull it out of context, and try to fit some kind of doctrine into that scripture. I won't. I, I don't go with that. I'll take your scripture, but I will study it in lieu of it and in with alongside the rest of the scripture to see what it means. But I, and I I don't ever change. But all I've ever found from salvation was a going forward. I have never ever had to drop anything that God showed me thirty years ago in order for me to attain something else. I've always hung on here with one hand and reached out for something else with the other. But I never let my anchor point go. Do you understand me? I am going to hang on to the truth, but I'm also going to be open to more truth. I don't believe a person has to give up something to gain something. Not when we're talking about Scripture. Since when did Scripture change? And I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. As far as I'm concerned, you go back into the late 1800s, early 1900s, they were a lot better educated than what we are today. You read some of that. I can't hardly stand to read modern Christian literature. You look at some of it and none of it makes any sense. But you go back in the late, the late 1800s and the early 1900s, all the way up to about 1950, and you read some of the literature then, it goes along with Scripture. These were men who, who could sense something better and greater, and they kept their, their heart, they kept their mind attuned with the Word of God. And you begin to look at this, and you, and you realize that why in the world would we throw out what these men who actually had more time to study because they didn't have movies and television? And so all their time was spent here. Why would we throw that out in lieu of somebody who just wants to build a great, big, huge church building full of, so, of a society of whatever? My wife says that I'm too hard sometimes. I don't know if I'll ever get over to I get the meaner I get. Isn't that right, Roxanne? <laughs> you don't have to agree, you know that. Let's look at at Lot's response to his culture. As the herds of Abraham and his nephew, Lot, increased, their herdsmen began to wrangle. The situation became so bad that Abraham determined separation was the only solution. So Abraham gave his nephew his choice of the grazing lands. Is not the whole the whole before thee. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. And if thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Now what we have here is just Abraham being a righteous man, Lot, you know, being his nephew. God had blessed both of them. They had more cattle and flocks and, and servants than they could deal with, and they and they were fighting because over the grazing land. It was just it was too big. There was too many of them. So what does Abraham do? He says, All right, Lot, everything's before us, you can go whatever direction you want, and he said, I'll take the opposite. And really, in reality, Lot should never have done that. Abraham was the elder. He should have been the one given the choice. But Lot, being the kind of person that he was, he chose the way down towards Sodom. And his way of choosing was down towards Sodom. In fact, he said, look at Genesis 13, 10 through 13, and it says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plains of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the gardens of the Lord. And like the land of Egypt, as thou comest into Zor, then Lot chose him all the plains of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves from one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tent towards Sodom, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Now the bright lights of the city of sin attracted Lot. West was a direction of Canaan, the promised land of God's will. East was the direction of the plains of Jordan and Sodom, the place where Satan was drawing lot. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. The world of sin is always worse than we anticipate. Always, always worse than what you anticipate. And saying this to to the youth especially, what you see out there and what you hear, uh, it's it's absolutely. It looks good because you've never touched it. It's the forbidden fruit. It's something that's within the flesh of every human being, and especially if you're young. Now, I've never done this before, and you know, I don't. If, if you could, if you could go take a, um, you know, you take a, a, a little bit of a census here, and you looked at a lot of people who smoke, older people who smoke, they would tell you, "I wish I'd never touched that cigarette when I was 16 years old." You know, when they're coughing up their lungs, they would definitely say something like that. I wish I had never t- touched that. It always looks good because the culture of the world, if you would, makes things look good. They tried to. It's an advertising gimmick. And the devil is in the midst of it. He's good at this. To draw you into something that will destroy you physically and destroy your soul. That's what he wants to do. So it always looks good. But when you're in the midst of it, It's hard to come back out of it because you begin to feel guilt. You begin to feel, uh, God could never accept me back. I can never overcome whatever it it is I'm addicted to. I can never get back from the drugs. I can never get back from the alcohol. Believe me, a few few social drinks can make you an alcoholic just the same as if you drink every day, all day long. It's an interesting thing I read one time. It said that a person who only drinks on Christmas Eve, and that's the only time they touch it, is still an alcoholic because he can't overcome drinking on Christmas Eve. It still makes you an alcoholic. It's whatever addiction, whatever you do. If you do it once a year and you can't help but do it once a year, you're still addicted to that once a year. The one thing that you want to be, you know the Bible speaks of Addiction. It actually does. It says, "I believe it's in Timothy where it said addicted to the ministry of the saints." So you can be addicted to ministering to people, to helping others. That's a good addiction. But being addicted to something that's going to make your flesh feel better—that's a bad addiction, one that will kill you. So the world, the world, you know, they—they—it it wants you to, uh, and it, it, never, it never is never as as good as what it it seems to be. You know, again, it was, it was. Uh, it was the men, again, were wicked, and Abraham had to remain. Abraham, brother, excuse me, had to remain in the promised land to enjoy God's covenant with all of its blessings, and God's people today has to stay in his will to enjoy and receive His blessings. You know, we can't give the to into Satan's enticing invitation to relocate to places where we live in sinful practices. That's something that you really need to be aware of. There are places, you know, I've seen it happen in years of ministry where people, young people, they move away, they move to the city, if you would. I'm not saying the city's wrong. People in the city can be saved the same, but the enticements there are much more intense. And it's, it's, it proves it here biblically. Down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, down towards the city, this is where the enticements were much, much more, much harder to, to break through, to keep away from. Always remember, the place where you're doing the best spiritually is a place you need to be. That's a place you need to be. Lot was influenced by the wrong culture. To the carnal, you know, uh, Sodom always looked more appealing than Canaan. If you looked at, at the two, if you looked at Canaan land, a wilderness, if you would, rocky, rough, wooded messed up hills and hollers and that's what we say in indiana and all of all of these things that that was in canaan land now sodom you know had the bright lights had all you know all the the beauty of of uh, you know of, of new york city if you will. it's a good place to me it's always kind of the right kind of comparison new york city to to this chicago it's even worse even still It seems Satan often uses cities as magnets to attract and seduce people to live according to the lust of their flesh. Large metropolitan areas are centers of crime, and you can look at this. Crime and sin, it is the center of all this. And many people living in one place evidently increases the probability of sinful behaviors because if you have so many people stacked on top of one another, that's where you're going to have a lot of sin. It's just the way things work. It's the carnal nature of man. So these kind of things are going to be there. Geographically, the cities of the plain were lower than the land that Abraham chose. Archaeologists have established that these cities were at the lower end of the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on earth. Now, when Lot chose Sodom, two cultures were appealing to him. Metaphorically, he looked down instead of up, and responded to the lower land and the lower culture. It's noteworthy that in the scriptural references to travels to and from Jerusalem, it is said that they went up to Jerusalem, or they went down from Jerusalem. When anyone left Jerusalem, the geographical center of worship of Jehovah, they went down. Therefore, when Lot left Abraham and Canaan, he went down to the carnal culture of Sodom. In fact, it has been said that they couldn't find, uh, couldn't find Sodom until uh, somebody, I, and this has been a few years ago, but someone finally, uh, divers found the, the remnants of a city in the Dead Sea. Uh, and why they said it was so low that when God rained fire and brimstone down on the city, he actually dug out a hole, and they said the Dead Sea overflowed that area. So it was—it's it, obvious that when you have, when God sees something that is sinful, when He destroys it, it's destroyed right. There's no coming back from something like that. So anytime that you you begin to look at sin, and sin becomes something that you desire, you begin to go down. But when you begin to look at God and he, you find that you desire Him, then you begin to ascend. You begin to go up. Even in a, in the, again, in a metaphorical sense and also in a spiritual sense. And in uh, Genesis nineteen one it says, And there came two angels to Sodom at even. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face towards the ground. And, and the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides? Sons-in-law, and thy sons, and thy daughters, and, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place. Because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So when the angels from God approached Lot, as he said in the gate of Sodom, they warned him of impending judgment from God due to the wickedness of Sodom. They urged him to rescue any family that he had in Sodom. Genesis nineteen fourteen. the Lot went out and spake unto his sons in law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But it seemed as one that mocked unto his sons in law. So Lot immediately went out and warned his sons in law by relating the message of the angels concerning the coming judgment. But they disregarded his urgent message, and the next morning. The angels had to to lead Lot, his wife, and two unmarried daughters out of the city, for they lingered and were not anxious to evacuate. I've long since, the Bible has never just been a book of stories to me. I've always allowed myself to be a part of that, to think in terms of what would I be like if I was in Sodom and my family was there. And I had angels come to me. How would I think? And, you know, it's real easy, and we can. Uh, you know, you can be judgmental towards Lot and his wife and his situation. But you need to put yourself in that situation. To leave. To leave your, your married daughters, your sons-in-law, probably grandchildren. You think about it. Probably grandchildren, to leave them, it's no wonder that they hesitated. But who's at fault here? You know, I'm not being judgmental at lot in this case. I'm judgmental at lot for the fact that he brought them there to begin with. That was the wrong. Be careful. Be careful in, in what you do. And I realize that sometimes, again, it's easy to think it's a good thing to to move to a different area or or to make something, not just moving, uh, again, in in a physical relations uh, to one geographical place to the other, but in in what you allow in your home, what you allow your children to do, what you allow yourself to do. When you begin to do that, it's like moving close to Sodom. And when judgment times comes, are you going to be able to step away from that? It's, um, It's a lot to look at. It's interesting that the angel told them to escape to the mountain. Neither stay thou in all the plain escape to the mountain lest thou be consumed Genesis 19:17. Leaving the low environments of Sodom for higher place affected their physical salvation but perhaps it also symbolically represented a spiritual salvation. Lot wanted to stay in the plain but the angel urged him to head for the mountain. The low place of Sodom where Lot had chosen to live was not only low geographically, but it was low spiritually. David said, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills from which cometh my help. In Psalm 121.1, God and righteousness will elevate a person to a higher life. Always you will be at a higher place. Even though sometimes standing on the mountaintops you may feel alone, you're not alone. There's all kinds of people out there that want to be on the mountain as well. So don't let the devil ever fool you into thinking that trying to live above what everybody else lives. Trying to put yourself in a better position spiritually is something you don't have to do. It's always the right thing to do. It's always right to go to the mountain. Always. When Lot left Sodom, he left almost everything precious and valuable to him. He left his married daughters. His two unmarried daughters went with him. Sons-in-law home. He, He lost his wife in the escape because she looked back. And as he said in a mountain cave overlooking the smoldering cities of the plain. Undoubtedly, the emptiness of wrong choices engulfed him. But that was not the end of all this ugly saga. You know, when you you make a mistake, God can forgive you, but you will always reap still for that mistake. You foul up, you make the mistake, again, God can forgive you, but there's always and will always be a reaping. I uh, kind of debated a guy one time, semi-debate, and he was was apostolic, but he felt like that when you got the Holy Ghost, that everything that you did, you would never reap for in the past. And that's wrong. You do reap. You get forgiven. You're a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. God doesn't hold them against you. And I can prove it by one thing. If you're a female, and you get pregnant, and you have a child, and you get in church, God does not take that child away from you. You understand what I'm saying? You still have that child with you. And that, you're still reaping, if you would. it's a one, Not against the children, but you still, when you have that child, that's still a reminder of what happened, no matter what. You still have that reaping. And regardless, um, my dad made this statement to me, and he had been, he was in church when he died, Lymphoma, 53, and uh, he, had, he had smoked, he'd had a rough life up to that point. And he would look at me and he said, well, I know I'm reaping what I sowed." but he said, thankfully, I'm ready to go. And we have to look at that. Don't hold it against God because you have to reap some things even after you're in a church. Don't hold it against God. You still you reap what you sow. It's a, it's a principle that will always be there. We just have to look at it and realize, you know, this is what I did. And in this case with Lot, he's still reaping. Even though he got out of the city, God gave him an opportunity, and actually the angels led him and his family out of there by the hand. And now his daughters think that the, the whole world is destroyed. So they get their father drunk, and they lay with him. They, go to, they sleep with him, and they both wind up pregnant. One child is named Benami, and the other one is uh, Moab. And from the results of those two children, you have the Ammonites and the Moabites. Two tribes gave Israel trouble for years. So not only, not only did they commit a sin of incest, but they produced two tribes that gave the whole nation of Israel trouble for years. So you, when you begin to reap, you begin to reap, you might as well just knuckle down, if you would, batten down the hatches and go through it and you don't know how far it's going to go. As much as Lot made the wrong choice and responded to the culture of unrighteousness, Abraham chose to live according to the culture of righteousness. His choice of lifestyle was not dependent on where he lived. He had to live for God regardless of where he lived, and although he would have avoided the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham wanted a path of peace. And God blessed him, and he allowed Lot to have the the first choice of grazing territory. Not only did the Lord tell Abraham he would give him and his descendants all the land he could see, but God told him he would make his posterity as the dust of the earth that no man could number, that his descendants would be as the dust of the earth. No man could number them. This was the blessings of Abraham. Now, uh, I I want to give you something here. There is an influence of culture on the people of God. Now, the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, lives in and guides the people of God, setting their standard of values, correcting their course of direction. According to Romans 8.14, they are led by the Spirit of God. Nevertheless, they are not immune from the subtle influences of culture. Culture of the world acts on everyone, but believers are to resist It's evil influences. It acts on everyone. No one is exempt from it. Nobody. And you let yourself get a little weak in the spirit. You give up on prayer a little while. Don't study your scripture. Don't come to church. Then it has more of a pull. All the time. Now, in in attempting to resist the culture of the world, some professing believers choose to isolate themselves from society. And you see this all the time. They form cloisters, and they live completely cut off from the world. But isolation is not God's idea of a Christian walk. He encourages insulation, not isolation. You know, you're insulated from it. You're not isolated from it. Now, personally, I would love to be isolated off the grid, no longer have electric bill. Yeah, I would. And I, I you, know, you know, but the thing is, I want to be isolated because I, I'm tight, and I don't want to pay the, you know, that's why I want to do it. In fact, I've been trying to figure. I even talking to him. I said, "We need to get up some solar panels and do all this." But the time I put all that up, I'd have so much money in it, I'd be long dead before I ever got paid for. So I might as well go ahead and pay the electric bill. <laughs> I even thought about. One of those wood-burning furnaces. My son put it in, and I thought, you know, I'll be dead and gone by the time I get that thing paid for. So what's the use in breaking my back load in a wood-burning furnace? Sometimes you have to think a little bit. Yeah, you know, it would be nice to be isolated and live off the grid until you've done it a while. How, about, how many people in here has ever gone to an outside toilet? There's a good example of what I'm talking about, Isolation. Oh my! I worked. I worked for the state. I was. I was down by the lake somewhere. There was a pit toilet, is what they call them, up on the hill. Some guy came running over the hill. I'll never forget it. He said, "Man," he said, "There's life. There's wildlife in that toilet." That's what he said. I said, "Wildlife?" He said, "Yeah." And I went up there and had to look down in the hole, you know. And there was a black snake down there. Now, can you imagine that? I felt bad for that snake. I got him out of there. Now I didn't get in there, but I don't know how, I, can't, I can't remember how I got him out of there. Guy hooked him and brought him out. I just kept him away from me. <laughs> I'm not one to to get upset. <clears throat> you know, I'm a hunter, but there's some things that upset. I hate to see anything put through a hard, hard, you know, tortured. I just don't like that at all. And uh, we pulled out of the driveway this morning. And I've been, I've been up in arms for some time because it tore our road up. I've, I've told you about that. Tore our road up. And now they're starting to try to repave it. But the people that lives on Apache Gentry's load, road, the Pottersville people, they drive to there and make a shortcut. And they drive about 85 mile an hour down through. In fact, they drive so fast that their hubcaps fly off. The bump, I'm serious. The bumps. they hit the bump so hard, their hubcaps fly off. And I pulled out today, and there was a fawn laying aside on our road that they had drove so fast, they hit this fawn, killed it. And, you know, I'm a deer hunter, but don't kill the fawns. I love the fawns because they're better eating later. They're tender. So you need a certain, you know, a certain point, you know. So, yeah, yeah I, I, the, there's a certain part of the culture of this world that irritates me, and you'd like to, to get everybody feels that way. But we're not isolated. Now, Limelech and his wife Naomi migrated to Moab during a famine in Bethlehem, Judah. Ironically, the name of the area they left, Bethlehem, meant house of bread. Not only did they leave, now this, this group of people left Bethlehem, the house of bread, because of a famine. Make sense. This? So they, they left a the godly culture because of a, if you would, a carnal need. Now, while in Moab, Elimelech and Naomi's two sons, Malon and Chilion, married two Moabite girls, Ruth and Orpah. In the course of time, Elimelech and his two sons died, and after three funerals, Naomi heard the Lord had visited his people and had given them bread, so she decided to return home. Now, had she not left the house of bread, she would have been fine because God visited them. The famine was over with. But they were still in famine where they were in Moab. So you 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 see that sometimes leaving a place because things are not the way you think they should be, you need to give things a chance. That can work on your job as well as your church or anything else. Look at what God is doing there. Just because uh, you have a little bit of a famine for a few weeks doesn't mean that there's a total famine there. So you, you look at that and... <laughs> The ironic side of the story, again, is that Elimelech left and he died while Boaz stayed in Bethlehem and was blessed. Now, were they supposed to remain in the land and trust God for bread in the famine? Ideally, that was what they should have done. But God turned their choice into a blessing. This is, this is something I, I've discussed before. The Bible says that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. All things work together. So in this case, they did the wrong thing, but God turned this wrong thing around and he blessed it. So when you see somebody who's done some dumb things and they get turned around and blessed, that doesn't mean they're still not reaping in some way. But God can still bless it and use it for a purpose, regardless of how smart we think we are, how knowledgeable we think we are, or how wise we think we are. There are times that God uses some of the—forgive me here for saying this—but the dumbest situations. You know, I see people do some really dumb things, and and yeah, it hurts them to a point. But God turns it around later, and can use that situation to do something great and i have seen people i think the key here is when you do mess up the key here is is seeing that you messed up confessing that you messed up and asking god to forgive you for messing up and you know you need to do that if you mess up daily still confessing it until you can overcome it but in the midst of some of that mess up if a person recognizes what he has done or she has done then they can look and God can turn that around and not forsake them, but use their situation for something great. And this is what we see here. This is, this is what He turned their choice into a blessing. If Elimelech and Naomi were out of God's will in Moab, He did not forsake them. And although their faith may have, have been perfect, or excuse me, have not been perfect, they still loved the Lord and held on to their faith. Moab was an evil land with with heathen culture, and Elimelech and Naomi were people of God. So this narrative should offer hope and encouragement to people who are living outside the will of God. It also should bolster the faith of people of God who have, have family members not living the righteous life they once lived. God's hand is still on these people, and they continue to benefit from the limited protection and blessings of God who is merciful. Never forget God's merciful. Never forget that. No matter how bad things have been for you, you still serve a merciful God, and God can turn things around. If you made a mistake, you still serve a merciful God, and God can turn things around. If you feel like you can't ever get back to what you once were, you're still serving a merciful God, and God can bring you to an even better place than you once were. It's all up to you and how you handle this. Every bit of it is up to you. When Naomi announced her departure to her daughter-in-laws, they decided to return with her until she reminded them of the desperation of such a response. It was then that Orpah kissed Naomi and returned. She went back to Moab. But Ruth would not leave her. She said, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will. Will I die? And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more so if aught be death, part thee in me. It was obvious the culture of Moab was a determining factor in Orpah's decision to remain in her homeland. Yet you see Ruth rejecting her heathen culture and deciding to assume the culture of Naomi and the Lord. Oprah, Orpah, Stayed and wept while Ruth left and rejoiced. She ended up marrying Boaz and becoming the great grandmother of David. Now, you think about that. Out of a big mistake, the great grandmother of David, King David, came to live in the Promised Land. Now, now think about it. marrying Boaz. Marrying so a very rich man. A very rich man, become a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. That's uh, you think about No matter how bad, always don't let the devil get your mind so confused that you think you cannot turn a situation or God cannot turn a situation around. Because it takes both of you. God will give you the guidance to turn a situation around, but you have to take the steps to do it. And if you will do that, you can wind up in a very, very wonderful, wonderful place if you just allow that to happen. Too often we become preoccupied with with the threat the culture of the world presents to the church without considering the opposite. The church can have a very strong influence on the culture. Jesus said, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And, and you know, this scripture here is something that, that, that is not taken by most of us the way that it, is, it actually is presented. And I want you to listen. Paul said this. He said in Galatians 5.17, he said, The flesh lusteth against the spirit. But he also said in Galatians five seventeen, the spirit lusteth against the flesh. You see that we take the first part and we think, oh, you know, we're, we're in a bad situation. We're in a bad situation. I'm really tempted. I'm afraid. I'm going to step out and do something wrong because. And you go back to that scripture where the you know the uh, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, but it also says the spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit lusteth against the flesh. In other words, as powerful as what the flesh is to get you to do the wrong thing, the Spirit of God is working more powerfully to get you to do the right thing. Because the Spirit also lusteth against the flesh. And if we would, we would take that and realize that no matter what our battle is, I've got something, and this is where the other scripture, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I've got something greater that is lusting against this flesh so I can do the right thing. It's all a matter of how we handle it. It's all of it. You know, the Holy Ghost is the most powerful, Holy Spirit is the most powerful force on earth. And when a spirit-filled family functions in a community, they represent a real force. Their influence on culture is more than they realize, and that's what we need to do. It was interesting. A pastor had written this in. He said he related how a teenage Christian girl in his church refused to wear shorts when participating in athletic functions. She was the only one wearing a skirt. And instead of her being tempted to wear shorts, the other girls asked if they could wear skirts. So when the teacher gave them permission, all the girls in the gym class wore skirts. Now, they weren't, they, they, they weren't in the church that they wanted to do this. She had enough influence on them. And, you know, I, I I think most young people, they may go with uh, whatever's going on in the world. But on one, another side of it, I, how can you not... How can you not respect somebody who takes a different stand? How can you not? I, you know, I, I respect I respect the Amish. I don't agree with their doctrine, but I respect them. But are again, they're off the grid, and I kind of have that that gene, you know. I'm not sure about the beard. They give me one of the big old hats. and Give me a beard. Think I'd look all right? Apple pie. You, you have to go cook for me because I have to have that. <laughs> But, that, uh, you know, you respect people who take a stand. And you, know, you might be laughed at, but there are people, and I, most of us can remember when you first got in church, some of the hardships that you endured when you went to work the next day or you know, next two days, whatever it was, you got saved on Sunday, you went to work on Monday, and you tried to live for God and tried to do the right things, and the cuss and heathenistic person you were on Friday is no longer that person on Monday. And people do their best to try to get you to fall. They do, but if you can hang in there for a few months, and all of a sudden they start asking you what happened to you, and you're able to have a witness as a result of that. It's, uh, it's the way it should work. We're the light of the world. You know, First John 1, 5 says God is light, and Matthew five fourteen says you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Glorify your Father which is in heaven. We reflect the light of Jesus Christ into a dark world, and, and they positively affect the culture. So if the church were not in the world, and this is what I was talking about a little earlier, it would be a dark place with no hope or help. The world does not realize how much of a deterrent to evil the presence of the church presents. The Word of God says, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth, that word letteth means hindereth, will let. Or hinder until he be taken out of the way, and that's Second Thessalonians two seven. Many of the theologians agree that the he spoken of is the church. So the church, the mystery of iniquity, hath already work. Only the church who now hindereth will hinder until he be taken out of the way. And if you go to the next part of it, Second Thessalonians two eight, then shall the wicked, the antichrist, be revealed. Simply, the church is the only factor hindering the Antichrist from doing a complete work of deceiving the world. So when the church is taken out of here, at the catching away of the church, when it is removed, then the Antichrist can step onto the scene. So we are the salt, we are the light that keeps this from happening. When we're gone, there's nothing here. The love of God is gone. Because the love of God is, is, is centralized within his body, his church. So when we're gone, the love of God is gone. There's nothing to keep evil from taking over. So it's it's a matter. Why wouldn't you want to church around? Why would people be against having uh, religious values, if you would, and I hate toward word religion, having biblical values, if you would, within the school system, uh, allowing prayer at sporting events, any of this? Why wouldn't they? Many forces work to eliminate the Bible and the church from contemporary culture, but they fail to realize how valuable these entities are in holding back the horrible things soon to come on the world. Thank God for the light of the church. Thank God for the light of the church in this, in this dark world, and we should. Matthew 5.13 says, We're the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. The church is a salt to the world and momentarily preserving it from impending doom. The church is seasoning and insipid, if you would, culture, making it palatable enough to be tolerated. This is what we, at this point, and, and as we get closer to the coming of the Lord, evil is beginning to get stronger and stronger, and it will. We'll keep it held back, but it's getting stronger so that when the church is taken out, it'll instantly have everything in place to take over. So we see it, and as a church, and as understanding some of the Scripture uh, concerning the end times, you see these things coming to pass. You see it happening. But we are the salt. We're the preserver of society at this point, is keeping this from happening. But if the church is no longer has that preserving agent, that's, a, that's what salt is. If it's lost its savor, if it's lost its agency of, of preservation, if we no longer have that, then there is no way that we can affect this world and hold back darkness. When the church becomes anemic, when the church becomes nothing but just a you know, the, the, the religious order out there, if you would, looks at it and laughs. You know, you're, you, it, it, and that's all it is. You know, the, the evil, the witchcraft, the demonism that is out there and is very prevalent in our world today, when they can look at the church and not have any fear whatsoever of it, then, then what's happened? A church that is on fire for God, holding the line, is going to be known in hell. It's going to be known by every cult, by every demon worshiper, by every witch. It's going to be known. And they're going to do everything they can to cause you. And it's not, it's not a matter of coming at you and, and sending demons. A demon is not going to walk in here and stay very long. They may walk in here, but they're not going to stay very long. But it's that, that gentle, it's, it's a corroding, if you would, uh, of what we are and who we are. It's that washing and, uh, and corrosion of our values and our morality. And it, it erodes us until, oh, yeah, we're here and we still have a building and we still have all the lights on and all that. But, but what are we? We're not holding the line. We're not prayer warriors anymore. We're not, we're not going and coming against and, and, and storming the gates of hell. That church is to be storming the gates of hell. That's what soul winning is all about. And believe me, when you begin to do that, hell begins to rise up. Greatest example of God's mercy relative to the presence of God's people holding off his judgment appears in Genesis 18 when God sent angels to Abraham to inform him of the impending destruction of Sodom. Abraham asked, Will thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure. There be 50 righteous within the city. Will I also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? Not only did the Lord say he would spare Sodom for 50 good people, he agreed to spare it for 45, for 40, for 30, for 20, and finally 10 righteous people. The Lord said, I will not destroy if you find 10 good people in Sodom. 10 righteous people would have saved the whole city, but there were not even 10 who were righteous. The greatest influence the family and the church have on culture is the exposure to truth that opens the door to salvation. Without the church, the world was no hope whatsoever of being saved. And since people cannot be saved without hearing the gospel and preachers preach the gospel, according to Romans 10, 13, and 14, the world needs the church. Preaching is a part of the fivefold ministry of the church, Ephesians 4.11. It would be foolish for snake-infested region to want to destroy the only antidote for the poisonous snakes of the area. That makes sense, doesn't it? You've got a snake infested area and the, you, the antidote, you have it right there in the house and you go oh, destroy the antidote. There's going to be a lot of people die from snake bite as a result of this. So in similar fashion, it does not make sense for people to be angry at the Bible and churches and preachers and Christians. Rather, they should try to preserve and protect their only hope of being saved. As long as we're here, there's hope. As long as we exist, there's hope. That's why it's so important to have a church in the county. In the cities, it's important to have them there because as long as they're there, there's hope. Thank God for hope. Stand with me. Again, there's no no service tonight. <sighs> I just about did it. I just about made the announcement and said, Come early and to pray tonight, and I would have really fouled everybody up. You still can do it if you want to, but, <laughs> okay. but I, I just about fouled it up. But uh, get in the habit of doing things, don't you? Thank God for hope thank god and every time i come to church every time that i get in the presence of god it's, it's it's a renewing of hope for me you know it's you know we can we can make it we can make a difference and we are making a difference the devil would love to highlight to you the things that you're not doing very seldom to see highlight the things that you are doing and uh We are doing a great work, and let's continue to do that. Let's raise our hands to the Lord together. Father, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness, your mercy, and I pray that you would touch each and every one. Bless them, keep them, Jesus, safe this day, this evening. Be with them this week, God, as they go back to the jobs, to school. Help them, God, in every way. Encourage them and touch their hearts, I ask here this morning in Jesus' name. Lord, bless you. You're dismissed.